it's very, very important to break the silence and to talk about it. It's not about whining. It's about telling your story and getting it out there. And then what do you do with it? What do you do with the information? How do you transform that so that you have a life and, you know, the emotional stuff you're going to have to deal with? You have to. There's no way. You can't skirt it. You can't skip over it. You can't pretend it didn't exist. But then what do you do with it? Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Judith Fine. She is an award-winning international travel and culture journalist, author, speaker, playwright, screenwriter, movie and theater critic, opera librettist, theater director, and blogger about transformative travel for psychology today. Her books include... Life is a Trip, The Transformative Magic of Travel, How to Communicate with the Dead, and The Spoon for Minkowitz, A Bittersweet Roots Journey Through Ancestral Lands. Welcome, Judy. Hello, Ronit. <laughs> Did I get all that? You got everything right. And, and when I hear it back, it makes me sound like the only thing I've ever done in my life is right. And I would say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> well... <laughs> I was going to say it makes you sound like the only thing you haven't done in your life is be an astronaut because I feel like you've done everything. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm an emotional astronaut, put it that way. Can you talk about where you grew up a little bit? Yes. I grew up in an erotic household in New York. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, we're going to go there already, huh? <laughs> yep, that's right. I'm from New York. That, that answers a lot of the questions yes. for starters. I grew up in a completely neurotic household in New York, in Laurelton, actually. That was the name of the town I grew up in. And um, that's my answer to that question. Mm -hmm. And when, when did you leave New York or did you, did you spend most of your life there? No, I went to school in uh, the northern part of the state. I went to Cornell University and then I left the country and I lived in Paris. I lived in uh, Switzerland, in Lausanne, Switzerland for nine years. I ran an experimental theater troupe there. Mm -hmm. And then I had an Arab boyfriend and I lived in Morocco for a while. I lived in Nigeria for a while. And then I moved back to the United States where I met my beloved. <laughs> and you're still with your beloved. He was just helping I us. Am I am with my beloved. He does everything for me. I'm codependent with him. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been codependent? We got married in 1985. Mm -hmm. We met in 1983. And we found out that our ancestors come from the same tiny village, which today is in Ukraine, and there's a likelihood we're related. Okay. So there you got it all. That's it. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk a little bit about you as a girl. Uh, were you creative when you were young? Did anyone foster creativity in you? And how did you feel about the arts or writing? The only thing that was really validated in the household I grew up in was creativity. That was it. That was number one. I don't think I ever had a discussion about money. I don't think I ever had a discussion about career, but both of my sisters are writers. 
Both of them have been actors like I have. This is what we rewarded for. Mm. So it's no surprise that all of us ended up following that path. And it's interesting to me because you've spoken of your mother, and we're going to get into your mom um, shortly. Was your father... Were your, Okay, the reason why I find this interesting is because when I think of arts and nurturing arts, I think of soft, kind-hearted, passionate, uh, empathetic people. But, but... Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> is this another myth that we have to burst right away? Yeah, let's... I want to talk about that because it's a surprise. It's a surprise knowing the little bit I know about your past to hear that the arts were nurtured that way. Well, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but we would go to Broadway shows all the time, for example. We might sit in the last row of the balcony, but we were there. Mm-hmm. And um, it was something that was always but nurtured. It doesn't have to be in a nurturing way. It means it was approved of. Mm-hmm. It was, I started publishing when I was six years old. Oh, my goodness. What did you publish? I published a poem about a little boy who went to the Museum of Natural History and it was published when I was six. So we've, we've always been doing this. And um, I don't think I would never connect the arts with softness, really. I've spent my whole life in the arts. And the people who, who run it, who are involved with it, no, it's not necessarily, uh, a, you know, that you get a humanistic Benny points for being um, in the creative art. It's not like that at all. But when you are in the creative mode, when you are writing, when I'm directing theater, when I used to act, th- then you're in a space where you're in a space of perfection. Whatever you do, whatever you feel, you're in a state of human perfection. But when you step out of that space, it's life as usual. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I think what you're also saying is that just because you're in the arts doesn't mean that you're impervious to bitterness or loss or anger or being a bad parent or having lots of blind spots. No, as a matter of fact, when you read biographies of artists, of actors, look, our culture is obsessed with movie stars. Look at all of them. Look at the abuse. Look at the yeah. the cruelty. Look at the sexual abuse. Look what they're being busted for. No, it's kind of incomprehensible to me. You know, one of the uh, the most brilliant composers who ever lived was Richard Wagner. And I'm a big Wagner fan. Wagner was such a rabid anti-Semite. He was such a cheater. He was so, he manipulated everybody. He was a terrible, terrible person. And he wrote love music hmm. that just about as high as you get when it comes to, uh, you know, classical music. He was a genius, all about love. And his works had so much tenderness in them. But he was a terrible person. It's very hard to reconcile yes, the two. Yes, yes. And so was your, of your parents, were either of them softer than the other? My father was uh, softer and more communicative than my mother. But he died when he was 50 years old. Mm-hmm. He probably checked out. He couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was abusive also. But at least he was somebody that you could talk to. He had a gentle side, Yes. My mother was very damaged mm-hmm. and damaging. Mm-hmm. And where are you in the birth order with your sisters? Middle sister. There were three sisters, three years apart, and I'm the middle one. Were you close growing up? The three of us? Yeah. That's such an odd question. What does the word close mean? Well, physically we were close. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, did you confide in each other? Did you band together when you weren't being treated well or no? 
No, because part of, I've come to learn that part of the narcissistic codependent loop, which is very, very interesting, took me all my life to understand it, is that the narcissist divides. My mother was a classic you know, malignant narcissist, but they divide the children. So they mount you against each other. They set up competition. It was really not, uh, not healthy, but everything I am, everything I've done, everything I've accomplished, everything I've learned comes out of that, that toxic stew also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people listening did not have mom apple pie growing up experiences. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I remember when I first, I really don't like talking a lot about it. It's not that I have anything to hide, but there were so many more interesting things that developed from it. But the first time I gave a talk about it in public, it was um, my mother had died and I chose not to go to my mother's funeral. I did not go to the funeral of my own mother. It was the most difficult decision I ever made in my, in my life. But I just wanted to stop it and get away. I didn't want to continue the family dynamics. So I went to Louisiana. You know, I'm a journalist. So I went on a press trip to Louisiana and I could barely talk which is not like me. I was so depressed. I was, so, I was mute. I couldn't speak. I was numb. And I'm sitting in a boat with a guy who's an alligator farmer. And he's whipping us through the, um, you know, the bayou kind of country. And he says something about that alligators are terrible mothers. And I went, oh my God, this is it. I'm part of this species. I'm part of the animal species. It's normal. I had an alligator mother. Okay. My mother was an alligator. The next day we go to a museum and in the museum in Louisiana, there's information about alligators. And it said that alligators are really very good mothers. And I went, wait a minute. I thought I had an alligator mother and it was terrible. Now I have an alligator mother and that's a good thing. And Anyway, I wrote an article about it. I think I wrote for Psychology Today about it. And I was giving a talk and a woman came up after my talk and she said, my mother was an alligator also. And then other people started gathering around and they started thanking me for going public and speaking honestly about this. And they all said, we had alligator mothers. And I thought, okay, you know, if I were writing songs, I'd write a song called Alligator Mother. Woo -hoo -hoo, you know? <laughs> so how did you survive then? How, let's look at, as you growing up, how did you hold on to this idea that you were going to be okay? Or did you? Did you know that you were going to get out? What was your plan to get out of that house? Well, there are multiple answers to that. First of all, when you grow up, you think it's normal. Yes. You know, that that's what you know of life. Yeah. You think your family is kind of normal. But um, when it really got bad, what I did is I was always the president of the school, the, the most popular kid in the school. That's what I needed, I guess. So I got it outside of the home and creativity I was, uh, I was remembering the other day when I was in high school, I was the president of the senior class and I would get up on stage every week. The principal would introduce me and I would write a poem about everything they needed to know. Mm -hmm. And so creativity and kind of, you know, winning the popularity contest, which is fatuous to me now, but that's what I did to get what I couldn't get emotionally in my growing up environment. Mm -hmm. So then- you knew things weren't great, but you didn't exactly know it wasn't normal. And you dealt with this through creativity. So when did it hit you, uh, fully hit you that this is no, this is wrong. This is not something I'm going to tolerate anymore. 
Okay, I think that I always had a conflicted relationship with my mother because she couldn't break me. And I had a conflictual, well, my father, I, I got along with, you know, pretty well. But when he would hit me, I would lie on the floor and I'd say, get your kicks for today, fat boy. I, I, I just mouthed back. I had a mouth. And, um, but that's it. I went on with my life. I thought I had a great life. And one day, I was living in uh, Santa Monica, California, and not all that long ago. And my younger sister came to visit. I remember we were in the post office. I was going to mail a letter or some kind of, you know, special delivery letter or something like that. And she said to me, well, you were an abused child. And I went, what? She said, well, you were an abused child. You were beaten. You were punished. No one spoke to you. No. Oh, my God. And that's when it hit me. And um, it's changed everything for me because... You know, I, I guess underneath you always think there's something you're doing wrong. It's your fault. It's your fault. Well, I was an abused child and people weren't talking about it then. And I, you know, I'm not into self-pity. I don't want pity. I want to talk about how do you survive and what happened with my writing and, you know, how all of this fit together. I am not alone. I wonder how many people out there could relate to what I'm saying. I bet there are a lot of you. And it's, it's very, very important to break the silence and to talk about it. It's not about whining. It's about telling your story and getting it out there. And then what do you do with it? What do you do with the information? How do you transform that so that you have a life and, you know, the emotional stuff you're going to have to deal with? You have to. There's no way. You can't skirt it. You can't skip over it. You can't pretend it didn't exist. But then what do you do with it? What do you do with the deck you've been dealt? And you have talked about emotional genealogy and how behaviors are passed down um, from generations, like through the ancestors. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. If you go, if you search, it's emotionalgenealogy.org that I have that website too. And what it's about is it's about behavioral epigenetics. Epigenetics is a relatively new field. And one aspect of it is behavioral. And they now think that behaviors passed down, it's not just genetic things, genetic gifts, genetic, uh, you know, deficiencies, but also that the behaviors are passed down and you don't even have to know the names of your ancestors or anything about it. But when you start really looking into your emotional genealogy, you're going to find out why you speak the way you do, behave the way you do, choose the kind of career you do or don't choose a career, the kind of mate you choose. Mm -hmm. Things are determined by what has been passed down to you. Again, even if you don't know who the people were, who your ancestors were. Mm -hmm. And you did know that there was a story that your family didn't talk about because I know you've mentioned to me in a previous conversation, you were mesmerized by the idea of a shuttle. And you mentioned to me also that the only soft person, your words, was your grandmother. So can you talk a little bit about how you learned about a little bit of your past and what you were trying to figure out? Okay, from the time I was a little kid, maybe when I was five years old, six years old, I was mesmerized with the fact that I had a foreign grandmother. She talked like this, Judy, I want to tell you that she had an accent. And I wanted to know everything about where she came from and who she was and what it was like she left behind. But she didn't talk about it. 
it wasn't something that immigrants spoke about. And I would, I, I loved my grandmother. She was soft. She was gentle. She'd say, Judah, Judah, I love you more than life yourself. It was like normal, wonderful feelings that mm. I got from my grandmother. But I didn't know anything about her. Mm -hmm. I knew the name of the shtetl, the tiny village that she came from in Eastern Europe. Then it was Russia. And it was called Minkowitz. And I would just keep asking, Grandma, tell me about Minkowitz. Grandma, tell me about what it was like. What did you eat? What did you wear? And she didn't answer. Uh, I think that the immigrants, they came to America and they wanted to leave be behind their painful life. Mm -hmm. And their kids they wanted to raise Americanized kids. So anyway, over the course of years, I got six tiny facts from my grandmother. When I say tiny, <laughs> I mean like the floor of the house she grew up in, the, the floor was made out of goat excrement. Oh my okay? goodness. That's one fact. Or that when she was 10 years old, she dried tobacco leaves in the field with the other women. I, I, these little six little facts, things like that, I held on to them as though they were rubies, as though these would, you know, these came out of a treasure chest, which in a way they did. They came out of my genetic treasure chest. And I tried to find out where this was. Where is this village? Where is Minkowitz? And I kept having close encounters. I remember once I was on a train in, uh, in Paris. I was going from Paris to Switzerland. And there was a man, I don't know, he started talking to me. I heard he had a Russian accent. And I was obsessed. And I said to him, do you know where Minkowitz is? And he said to me, Minkowitz, you're from Minkowitz? I said, yes, my grandmother's from Minkowitz. He said, I know everything about Minkowitz. I could tell you so much. I said, please, all my life I've been wanting to do this. And then the train whistle blew. Ooh, ooh. And the man who was his stop, he had to get off. I said, attendez, monsieur, ne sortez pas. I was trying to get him not to go off at his stop. And he went off at his stop. And there were always these close encounters like this. And finally, I mean, it's a whole story. That's why I wrote a, a book about it. I found out where it was. Today, it's in Ukraine. And I was sent on assignment to Russia. And my husband and I said, well, wait a minute. Let's just go from here and track it down. And we went and we found the village. We found Minkowitz. I am telling you, from the minute I saw the little sign in the countryside that said Minkowitz, Minkowitzki, you know, in, in uh, Ukrainian, I started to, to cry, not crying because I was upset, but crying because I was so moved. And everything that happened in that village. And when I was leaving Ukraine, we we hired a guide, you know, we didn't have the language. But I felt when I was in that village, I could smell the same air my grandmother smelled. I could touch the things she touched. I could walk the, the dirt paths where she walked. It's a tiny village with one dirt street. And it was so moving to me. And I found all of the six clues she talked about. When we drove into the town, into Minkovitz, I said to my husband, he's a photographer. I said, Paul, photograph that building. He said, why? It's so ugly. Paul, photograph that building. He said, Judy, it's broken down. The windows are smashed. You'll never, Paul, I'm begging you, photograph that building. It turns out that's where the girls dried tobacco leaves hmm. when, my mother, when my grandmother was a child. So anyway, I came home from that trip and I understood that you have to connect to your ancestors. And if you can in this lifetime, 
go to the place they come from. Walk on that ground. Just go there. So anyway, I came back. I'm a writer. So I wrote a book. Mm -hmm. I wrote The Spoon for Minkowitz. And when I finished writing, I knew eh, eh, there's something major missing. But it was very problematic. What was missing is that a lot of it turns out to be my mother didn't like her mother, Mm -hmm. my grandmother, whom I loved. And my relationship with my mother was so fraught. I knew that I needed to write about that for this book to be real and for it to have layers and for it to be deep and resonant. But my mother was dying. So I called my mother and she said, she got on the phone. She said, oh, Judy, I, 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 I can't talk. I'm too weak. I said, OK, Ma, listen, I really, really need to talk to you. How about I talk and you just listen? Is that OK? She went, oh, okay. So I said to her, look, Ma, I just wrote this book about Minkowitz. I know you're not interested in it. You never wanted to talk to me about it. You hate everything about it that you ever knew. But I wrote a book about it. And I want to include in the book, it's mandatory, about my relationship with you, your relationship with her mother, etc., about how this works. And I would have to tell the truth about the abuse and what it was like to grow up in the house with you physically, emotionally, all the battering, everything. And she Mm -hmm. said, Judy, ever since you've been a child, you've been writing, and I never told you what you could or couldn't talk about. I never told you, you're going to write about whatever you want to write about. And I thought, is this my mother? Really? <laughs> well, 10 seconds later, the woman who couldn't speak, she screamed at me. Everything that happened when you were a child was your fault. You were the one who caused it. It was all your fault. And, and I just let her rail for 10 minutes. And when she finished, I said, okay, ma. Okay, look, I want you to have a peaceful night's sleep. We're going to get off the phone now and you just have a good night's sleep. And I hung up the phone and I was screaming, yes, yes, I got a permission. She said, I never could tell you what to write. <laughs> and I went back and I rewrote it and I put in the truth about what this mother-daughter thing, how it goes about, what it's all about. I put it in and then mm-hmm. that was the book. And what is your advice to memoirists about writing what their experience was. Okay. First of all, we'd have to talk about memoir. This is my Mm -hmm. feeling. Again, you know, I don't, I don't claim to have the key to the truth. A memoir, in a memoir, it's I, you know, you're telling it in first person. And a lot of things I write, I mean, I've written subsequently, it's first person, it's all memoir. But there is a persona that is you. It's not a hundred percent you. It's not a thousand percent you. It's a constructed you that you write with. And Mm -hmm. you have to be so honest. You have, anytime you say, no, I'm not going to write about that. Well, that's what you need to write about. Or anytime you say, oh, that's too heavy (laughs) or, or that's too embarrassing. That's what you need to write about. But you're in control. It's not like you're just letting your emotions just fly all over the place. You're in control of the persona. You're in control of how you tell it. You're in control of that voice. And it's not, you're not giving yourself away. You're constructing an eye on paper. I digital Mm -hmm. that is not 100% the same as you. So you have a choice of how you tell it because it doesn't just suck the life out of you. It's a you that you construct Mm -hmm. for memoir writing. And my advice to you is that 
you have a mission in life, even if you don't know what it is. And part of that mission is to become whole. You were born whole, I hope. (laughs) And to go back to that state of wholeness by looking under the leaves and turning over the stones, but then you're in control of how you tell it and how much you want to tell. So, you know, some people contact me all the time. They say, oh my God, it's killing me to write this memoir. Well, it shouldn't kill you to write a memoir. It should actually heal you to write write a memoir. Mm -hmm. But just remember, you're not giving yourself completely away. You're holding the reins of this cart, you know, and, you know, the horses are only going to run when you let them run. So you keep that amount of control that you are the creator and the owner of the persona. If that makes sense to you, Ronit. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, it does make sense. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying, because it's not just the way that we write about ourselves and our lives is always through some type of lens or perspective. And we are in control of that. We get to decide, which is why I think writing is an act of creating, because it's not just blah. It's not just I'm going to just say whatever I want to say. There's a there's a curating. Yeah, that's it. a wonderful word. You're curating. You're a curator of the exhibit of your life. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, there's another thing. Everywhere I go, people always say, oh, you know, I'm a writer. I want to write this and I want to write that. You don't write unless you have to write. I mean, financially, economically, it's ridiculous to be a writer now. <laughs> you know, there are millions, <laughs> literally millions of books even published on Amazon every year. There are, you know, how does anybody, anybody ever find a book? But you write if you have to write. And if you don't have to write, don't write. Don't torture yourself about, oh, I should, I should be writing. Why aren't I writing? Why aren't I writing this book? Because you don't have to. When you have to, I can tell you, you do it. Yes. And do you know if your sisters read the book? You know, it's funny. One of my sisters read the book and the only comment she made was, you shouldn't have said that about our mother. That was the only comment. And it was kind of sad to me. The other one never said anything. It doesn't matter to me. That's not my reality anymore. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not my context anymore. And I needed to write this book. And when I see the reaction of readers right now, you know, I don't know who's reading anything. But when I give a talk, people in the audience are, are crying. They're not crying because I'm making them cry. They're crying. Sometimes they come up to me. I was giving a talk in a church and the the priest came up to me after and he said, why didn't I ask my grandparents anything growing up? Well, because you didn't, you didn't, but it's not too late to find out now. You have an emotional genealogy you Mm -hmm. can track. And when I give a talk, I ask people in the audience to stand up and I ask them to say out loud the name, for example, of their grandmother. And they start to sob. Because we're living in a culture here where we are deracinated. Our roots have been ripped up. It's not, it's not about fault. Whose fault? Immigrants came here and they wanted to be, to be American. And they mm-hmm. didn't talk very much about where they came from. Most people don't even know their grandparents' names, their grandma and grandpa, their names. And most people don't even know where their parents were born, where their grandparents were born. But this is your legacy. This is very, very precious information. And I really try in everything I write and everything I do to try to get people to connect to their ancestral line. And when I write about 
indigenous people around the world and other cultures, it's all about ancestor. It's not ancestor worship. It's honoring the ancestors because Ronit, you and I and everybody listening stands on somebody's shoulders, who stands on someone else's shoulders. And if you don't acknowledge that, you're like a loose balloon let up into the air. That's my feeling. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of reference too. I mean, we didn't really talk about this when you went to, to Minkowitz, but there was a condition for your ancestors of the pogroms and of shadow life. And I don't know that a lot of listeners who haven't, who aren't Jewish or haven't studied Jewish history know about this. Are you able to talk a little bit about this just to give us a little backdrop? You know, wherever I go, whatever I write about, I never, I don't want it to be a selfish act. So when I went to Southwestern Ukraine, all over Ukraine, and I, and Moldova also, I wanted to find out what's left of that whole world. It's all there. Now, if people travel and they're looking for the best restaurant and they want to stay in the top hotel, they're not going to see it. But let me give you an example. I went into a farmer's market. It was quite upscale and it was, you know, wonderful and everybody was going there to shop. And in the corner, there was a woman wearing a kerchief and she was an old woman. And she was a little bit bent over and she had two bottles of milk and there were glass bottles of milk. And I started to talk to her and I said, wow, that's really interesting. Do you live here? She said, I traveled two hours on a bus to come here to sell the milk, to have some money to go back. And I went, oh, that's the world I come from. Everywhere we went, every step of the way, there were these connections. And Mm. the biggest thing is that most of the people who were Jewish in these shtetls and these little villages left to the United States. It was life-saving because afterwards when the Nazis came in, they were persecuted under the czar. And Mm -hmm. there were terrible pogroms. Like in 1906, there was a pogrom. And they came into the shtetl and they went after the Jews and the Jews were terrified. Many of them emigrated Mm -hmm. to the United States. They had almost nothing. They had nothing, but they left. But those who stayed behind, when the Nazis came in, this was part of my experience talking to a woman, the oldest woman who was still left in Minkowitz, who told me all of her memories. The Nazis came in and they lined up every Jew and the Jews were part of life there. And they took them up. She showed me where it was in the mountain and they shot them and they killed them. And her best friend was being led away at gunpoint. I think her friend was maybe 15 years old and she was being led away and, and you know, with a, with a gun in her back, with a rifle in her back. And this woman told me she called out to her friend and the guard said, the police, whoever it was, said to her, you say one more word and you're going with her. And then they sat all night and listened to the sound of gunfire as all of them were murdered. So if they did not come to the United States, we would never be born because they would have been wiped out. And, you know, there's one very, very intense experience I write about that happened at a well, but I'm not going to, I don't like being a spoiler, but where I really not only learned the information, but I, I felt it in my bones about what it was like. And it was a completely transformative um, experience. And you don't have, you know, many people who read the book, for example, are not Jewish. It has nothing to do with that. But it's about this ancestral thing. And wherever your ancestors came from, very often they left very difficult situations 
And they came to the United States to try to make a new life. And they carry the trauma with them and they carry the memory, but they really didn't pass it on. It's imperative to find out who they are, what happened. And the the Jewish story is very, very dramatic because, you know, most people know that six million Jews, also other people, there were Muslims, there were gypsies, there were um, gay and lesbian, you know, lesbian and um, homosexual people. And they were also in concentration camps, but the six million Jews were killed. And that's what most people know about. But there was the whole life under the czar and all of the traumas that were going on there. And I don't know, I needed to find out from people there, not reading about it in books. And that's what I, that's what I chose to wrote about. And if my mother <laughs> had not given me her brand of permission before she screamed, I probably wouldn't have gone, I wouldn't have put most of this in the book, but I did. And, and uh, if you want to write a memoir, maybe everything you write is some form of memoir one way or another. But if you want to mm-hmm. write a memoir, mm-hmm. memoir, you got to dig, you got to dig, you got to get that spade and dig in. And, and it makes me think a little bit about our conversation a little bit earlier in the interview where you said you don't like to think too deeply about what happened and, and growing up. And there's sort of, I think, uh, almost like a balance when you write memoir or when you visit your history of learning from it, but incorporating that relationship into your current understanding of who you are and where you want to go, but not getting dragged down in your family's trappings, yet being able to take what has happened to everyone in your family and your experience as a child and creating something new. Okay. I no longer think it's very interesting to write about abuse as a child. Everybody's done it. I I have not avoided thinking about it. Oh my God, no. But in terms of writing about it, Mm -hmm. what do I want my life to say to other people? You know, so many people are writing abuse memoirs and I don't know. I've, I've kind of lost interest in that, but memoirs, as you're saying, Ronit, that track how what happened made you how you are or how you reacted or didn't react to it. That's what's of great interest. So the details of abuse, I think abuse is really, really widespread. Sometimes it's Mm. the kind of abuse I had, which was physical and emotional. Sometimes it's just emotional, sometimes physical. Sometimes it's that you were ignored. You didn't have any importance. There are many, many kinds of abuse. I think a lot, a lot of people carry tremendous abuse with them. And if you're, if you want to write, or even when you read, what do you choose to read about? Do you want to read about how terrible someone's life is? Or do you want to read about a person? And this is part of that person and how maybe the role is played for that person. You know, what do you want to read about? What do you want to write about? It's your choice. There's no right or wrong, but you leave a mark in the world. What do you want that mark to be? It's a big question. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you you became a travel journalist how long ago? Two decades ago, 20 years ago. And and when you did, was it a conscious decision to, to move around or how did it happen? Okay. I always, always, look, I'm telling you about my grandmother. I was always interested in people who are not like me. I always had a fascination with people from other countries and cultures, and I always traveled all my life. But I was a Hollywood screenwriter for 13 years, and I was very unhappy. 
because of course love I love any kind of writing you know shopping lists I, you, <laughs> I, I like to do it but the system was so abusive I'm really not into abuse giving it or getting it and the system in Hollywood was so abusive and so soul-sucking and one day I just I, I can't do this anymore I, it, it's too, it's too soul bash. I just can't do it anymore. And I didn't know what to do. So I checked in to a Franciscan monastery in Arizona and I asked permission from the mother superior to have a week of silence. And she said, well, people don't usually do, but okay, give me permission. Because I couldn't speak, I got into a food fight with a nun. I got hauled over by a cop <laughs> on a dock. All these crazy things happened when I wasn't speaking. And um, mm -hmm. I came back, I came back home. What am I going to do now? I have no career. I have nothing to write for. And my younger sister called and she said, hey, you know, there's a new show on uh, nationally on public radio and it's called The Savvy Traveler. You've always liked traveling. Why don't you send in a radio piece? And I said, oh, please, you know, it's too hard to get on that. And we happened to have a little recording studio in the house because my husband, Paul, did voiceovers in Hollywood. And I did voiceovers with him sometimes, too, professionally. So we mm, had the equipment. Mm -hmm. And I went into our little studio in the basement. And I recorded the story of what happened when I went on a silent retreat, all of the things that happened. <laughs> and I sent it in. And four days later, they called up and I became a regular on a show, on the show. Wow. And I said, one day I said, oh, I have a national audience. So why can't <laughs> I just write about some of these things? And well, then I sold a newspaper article. And I said, oh, I could do magazines too. Oh, I could do this. Internet, when internet, oh, I could write. And I just stumbled into it. I didn't even know it was something you could do. I love that. And I also love the fact that you just did this thing. It's like one of those wonderful stories you hear that inspires. Did what thing? That you recorded the story. You went to your recording studio, you sent it in, and then they called you and said they wanted you to be a regular. That's like wonderful. But everybody's afraid of doing that. All of us are. You're afraid of rejection. If you're afraid of rejection, then you have to become a seamstress. You can't be a writer. I'm curious, you know, you have this beautiful partnership with your husband. And do you have any extended family you spend time with or do you mostly keep to yourself? Well, right now during the pandemic, you know, we're hermit crabs. What can I tell you? But... <laughs> I have a couple of cousins. No, I, I, it's really, uh, I'm in a post-family world most of the time. My connections are family of choice, family by heart like that. And, you know, I'm still mm -hmm. in touch with my sisters for, you know, holidays and things like that. But it's not hostile, but it's just not where I, I find nurturing or where I, where I find, mm -hmm. um, no, it's, it's just not it. I wonder, do you feel calm most of the time? Do you feel, you know, pretty settled? Do you feel like you still have a lot to accomplish? What, what is your, you know, what is your MO these days? Okay, my MO is that when I am in the present, when I'm traveling, when I'm doing something that I'm really interested in, I'm 100% in the healed Zen mm -hmm. state. And when I'm not... I don't particularly like downtime when I do nothing because I have anxieties and I have, I don't know, doubts. Oh, why didn't I do that? How come I didn't? And when I'm in the, in the hill state, I don't do that at all. And I would say that 
If you were to inhabit my body, mind, soul, I, I'm connected to other worlds. I don't just, I, I think it's boring. This kind of mainstream pedestrian plane, it doesn't interest me that much. But I communicate with nature. I've learned how to communicate with the dead. I, I just, um, I'm not bound by the rules that we all agree to. And many other people aren't also, I'm not unique. But I just, I, I, I'm not interested in just living kind of a, a binary, regular mm -hmm. world. It doesn't interest me and it never has. And so every day of my life is an adventure. And sometimes it's a shitty adventure. <laughs> sometimes there are, you know, unpleasant things or I'm unhappy, I'm anxious or something like that. I can't sleep. But all of it. I live in an adventure. You live in an adventure. And when you start to see your life like that, then you're traveling all the time, even if you can't get on a plane right now. But your life is, an, I wrote a book called Life is a Trip. Life mm -hmm. is a trip. Life is mm -hmm. an adventure. And where can, where would you like people to find you in your work? What's the best place to find you? Well, there's links to everything on uh, my website, which I share with my husband. His photos are there. And I just got a new domain name because the other one was too difficult, but I'll give you both of them. The new one is www.livetoleave.com. The other one is the, ma the main one, but it's all connected, is globaladventure.us, like United States. Adventure is singular. Globaladventure.us or livetoleave.com. And it has all the books. You can sign up. Uh, we send out links to what we're writing once a month. You can go to the blog about transformative travel on psychology today. You can contact me through mm -hmm. the website. Any way that I could help your humanness by being there. Judy, thank you so much for for having this conversation and for letting me learn a little bit more about you. And I'm I'm excited to share your story with the listeners and have them learn from you because you've had such a vast experience. Well, that's a very sweet thing to say. And I want to say to your listeners that I have no recollection of what we just spoke about for the last hour. I'm trying to I'm trying none, zero. I, I, I'm in the present here and I'm just trying every way I know how in a limited amount of time to connect to you, to connect to what you feel, what you think, who you are. That's my goal in life. And if I have touched you, you or need your listeners for a moment in time, then I'm very happy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 